0: Welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder of Love Scene, Jenna Lyons. Jenna Lyons has always been a creative, but a younger Jenna did not imagine she'd end up in beauty. Jenna was six feet tall by the time she was 13 and had a genetic disorder that affected her teeth and left her with bald spots, scars, and no eyelashes. She tells me that she was teased for the way that she looked. However, after learning how to sew in a home economics class, she discovered she had a flair for design. Upon seeing one of those designs, the most popular girl in school complimented her on her taste and her talent. A moment that Jenna explains changed everything, and a future in fashion suddenly felt like a path she could take. Jenna studied at Parsons School of Design before taking a role at J.Crew upon graduating. She began as an assistant designer in menswear, then womenswear, worked her way up to vice president of women's design, was appointed executive creative director in 2008, and in 2010 became president of the brand. In 2017, after 27 years with the brand and having been credited by the New York Times as the woman who dresses America, Jenna left J. Crew. Given the link between fashion and beauty, Jenna found herself consulting on a beauty project and began to research the industry itself. She had long been fascinated by false eyelashes, given that she has about 10 lashes herself, but had never been able to find false lashes that still made her feel like herself, lashes that were pared back and allowed her to look like herself only amplified. Recognising a white space, Jenna called makeup artist Troy Olivier and the pair began working on Love Scene. Love Scene's collection of lashes were created by gathering 21 men and women aged 17 to 72 with a team physically building each lash set onto their faces. 973 Zoom calls, two trains, six planes, 10 cars, 22 cases of Prosecco, 34 sample rounds, one global pandemic and 18 months later, LoveScene launched with 14 unique sets of lashes. And this month, the brand finally arrives in Australia. In this conversation, Jenna shares what it was like making the move to a startup after over a quarter of a century at one of the biggest brands in the world, her advice for anyone growing and building their own team, and why hitting 98% of a goal simply isn't enough. So you were born in Boston, Massachusetts, grew up in California. So let's start right there. What is your very earliest memory of beauty?
1: Wow. Research. Okay. Very first memory of beauty. Um, I mean, I moved when I, I moved from the East coast when I was four and I remember distinctly moving into my neighborhood and there was a woman on the corner named Mrs. Brownstone and Mrs. Brownstone was the most beautiful creature I had ever seen. She had beautiful long brown hair and she was wearing, I think like a silvery pink lipstick that I had never seen before. And today I would probably scoff at it. But back then as a four-year-old girl, I was like, what is that and how do I get it? It was magical. And that was the first time I ever thought about application of something. You know, she had the silver pinky nails too. I mean, my mother didn't wear any makeup she was not that person at all. And so here I'm introduced to Mrs. Brownstone, who gleaming brown skin. She was she was sort of, um, I don't even know, she was kind of a very tan. I don't know what her nationality was, but she looked a little bit like, I don't know, like she was from Peru, Peru or Bolivia. So she had like beautiful caramel skin, these white silvery lips and white silvery nail polish. I was like, uh-huh. okay, I want some of that. <laughs>
0: I've heard you say in previous interviews that while you didn't know exactly what you wanted to be when you grew up, you knew that you wanted to do something creative. Of course, you went to study fashion at Parsons. So at what point did fashion start looking like the path that you wanted to take? What drew you to it?
1: Um, I had a pretty uh, like specific experience. I was, um, I was six feet tall in the seventh grade, mm-hmm. which is 13 years old. And I also had a genetic disorder, which left my teeth conicular, like cones, and um, bald spots in my hair, and like scars in my arms and legs, and, um, and was pretty, you know, I was teased for the way I looked for years, and, um, and not really ever felt like I fit in. And then uh, I took a home economics class, in which case I learned how to sew, which is so funny. Like, can you imagine that now, a home ec class? It's like, sew so not PC. I learned to sew. I learned how to bake, and I learned how to balance a checkbook, the last one, I really never grasped. And I made a skirt, a full-length bias skirt with watermelons on it. And uh, the girl who was the most popular girl in school, her name was Darlene Patterson, was in my sci- uh, silver uh, social studies class. And she sent me a note. She said, I love your skirt. Where would you get it? And I wrote back, I made it. And she was like, oh, my God, will you make me one? And like the whole world opened up. I was just like, wait, what? Like that was the first positive attention I'd gotten for something. How, for how I looked, for something I'd made, and anything having to do with clothing, like it was just kind of incredible, and um, yeah, it sort of opened up a whole world for me. And I got a subscription to Vogue and a sewing machine that Christmas, and off I went.
0: The rest is history. So you got into <laughs> Parsons. During your studies, you were working for Donna Karen before graduating, and then obviously yep. you took the role at J Crew. These are two very different brands. So what was it that
1: drew you? From Donna Karen and to J. Crew? I mean, I think, you know, while I was working at Donna Karen, I was offered a job, and I think my salary was, I couldn't afford to live in my apartment. I really couldn't afford to eat. I was, I, you know, I didn't take the job. Um, but one of the things I noticed is that, you know, at that time, even back then, like this was 1990, and a jacket was $2,500. They were like six ply cashmere, and they were beautiful. But not a single person I knew or who was in my orbit could afford any of the clothing. And so there was this real kind of disconnect between the product that I was, I wasn't working on it. I was just cleaning up the, the design studio. Trust me, I wasn't part of anything, but um, I i felt like a little disconnected to the product that was being made. And I went home for the summer, I waitressed and uh, the Crew catalog kept coming in. And I had, I'd put my, I'd seen the name up on the um, bulletin board at school before and I put my name in and I never got a call. And at the end of the summer, after i have been waitressing, after pouring through all the catalogs, they called me and said, would you be interested in interviewing? And so they flew me out to New York. I interviewed. Then they flew me back to LA. I met Emily and like Emily offered me a job and I took it on the spot and didn't even ask what the salary was. <laughs> would not do that now. No, would not advise for anyone <laughs> listening.
0: So you were working as an assistant designer in menswear, then you moved to womenswear wear. Over the next 12, 13 years, you work your way up to Vice President of Women's Design. Now, this is a broad question, but were there any lessons from that first 10 or so years where your career was really in its infancy that you find you're still applying to your work now for Love Sane?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think there is not a moment or a day that goes by being being, being a subordinate, meaning having a boss, really is you know is incredibly humbling and important because when you become one you start to see all the things that you did and you're like oh that's how that feels or you know and vice versa meaning you recognize how hard it is when you did that thing years ago you know whether it be showing up late or not completing something or complaining or asking for money you know whatever it may have been Um, but it also makes you remember you know what you liked in your boss and what was the thing that your boss did that was really helpful was it was it the tough love? Was it the tenderness? Was it, you know, um, encouraging you? Was it like, you know, humiliating you? What are those things that really moved you? And I think, um, I think, you know, probably the most important thing and, and the thing that I am constantly going back to is really trying to slow down and remember, like take a minute to remember what it's like to be young. Um, it is different. And, uh, I was stupid and, uh, you know, I was out of my mind half the time. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't understand the process. I didn't understand how it worked. You know, there was this idea of the company and it didn't connect that it was all, you know, interspersed. And I, and trying to remind myself of that, you know, because it's, it takes a while to kind of grow into yourself. And, um, and I think people are always trying to move too fast.
0: In 2008, you were appointed executive creative director and in 2010, you became president of the brand. Now, I'm in a unique position here, having access to one of few people who have had that level of creative control over a major brand. Like even (laughs) writing that down, I was like, what do you mean president? But I know that a (laughs) lot of our listeners come from small business. So I would love to ask what advice would you give to anyone who is in the process of growing their team and subsequently leading a team?
1: Oh gosh. I mean, I think, um, I think one of the lessons that I learned from Mickey that I value so much as, um, you know, prior to his arrival, there was, there was the executive team and they made all the decisions and they made them kind of in a silo and, there is something that I really loved about the way that Mickey ran the company. He involved anyone and everyone who was interested. So for instance, and it's funny because we're talking in Australia and Joe Horgan, who is the reason we're coming to Australia, had this experience and and after this experience, she herself installed an intercom, which you guys have a different name for it. What do you call an intercom?
0: Oh, I could call it an intercom.
1: Oh, she called a different name. Okay. Anyway. um, And so he would say like, okay, anyone who, lives in you know Texas who knows this mall come to my office and he would then say listen we're looking at opening a store in this mall what do you think of it would you go there do you hang out there do your friends hang out there would your mom go there like he would ask the team and the people who are on the ground as opposed to making this decision in a silo and not soliciting advice and information from the people who were in the building and who had experiences that maybe he didn't have and that was pretty remarkable to me like I'd never seen anybody solicit and in, in invite in such a huge range of people and really listen. And that I think is is such an important, like, you know, the older I get, the more I treasure that because I think, you know, again, the ones who are young are the ones who are thinking about what's ahead because they're so much more connected. I was so much more connected to the pulse of things, of what I wanted, what a, you know, a 24-year-old wanted. I have a different pulse right now. It doesn't mean I don't know what's going on, but I want to listen to somebody who is 23, 25, 29, because they have different desires, for needs. They're looking at different things. And, you know, it's my fault if I forget to ask because they've got information and it's my responsibility to get it.
0: God, that's good advice. Ooh. You left... J. Crew in 2017 after about 27 years with the brand. Now, on the Love Scene website, it's noted that development took about 18 months. I've done the maths. Obviously, you didn't begin immediately after leaving, so there's no overlap. I would yeah. love to know when those wheels started turning, though. I mean,
1: I think they started turning sort of unexpectedly when I was still at J. Crew and I didn't even realize it. I, you know, being someone who, doesn't have any eyelashes, and I don't know if you have something that you feel deficient in. You probably notice that in somebody else, you know. I I noticed eyelashes because I don't have any, and so I noticed all the women in my office were coming in, you know. And these are women who don't really wear makeup, you know. They, I mean, maybe they would wear a red lip every once in a while or a kiss of blush, but there was very little makeup, makeup, and they were getting eyelash extensions, all of them, and you know, the eyelash extensions, sometimes I could always tell when they were getting married because the eyelash extensions would sort of enter the room like four minutes before they did. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, they're here. And, and I was like, that's so interesting. And I was fascinated by it. And, you know, and then on the flip side, I, I I was becoming obsessed with, you know, Huda Beauty was probably one of the first Mm. makeup companies that was doing a lot of video. And I became obsessed with these videos where these women would transform themselves with like seven layers of contour eight different shades of of foundation and a highlighter and another highlighter and a jaw lighter and an underlighter and and i was like what the hell is going on and at the end of this incredible like 22 layers of makeup they would put on an eyelash I was like it's so interesting that these women over here who are wearing no makeup are doing the same focus on their eyelashes as these women who are wearing a lot of makeup and is there something in between and i like in between i love that space of like being who you are but amplified and I was like well maybe there's something here so it kind of was percolating and then I was asked to do some I was asked to consult on a project for someone and it was a beauty project and I started doing research just like what's going on in the industry and I was like huh there's not a lot out there and I was like well if there's white space then maybe people need something and if I think of design as a service business so if maybe someone needs to be serviced and here I am
0: there'll probably be a bit of overlap here, but I think worth honing in on what was it that you felt specifically was missing from the existing, I guess, false lash offering. And what did you want to contribute to that space?
1: I know it's a good question because I think if you're asking, it means I didn't answer it. Um, I think, you know, I love wearing no makeup and I love that look that really, like really pared down refined look, but I don't have eyelashes. But I also like love a little glam, but I can't do like the hoodie. I love Huda Beauty, I'm like all day long. I own the products and they're great. They're, it's just a lot more makeup than I can wear. And you know, I think having done you know red carpet events and Troy who was my partner in this, you know, he would oftentimes cut little lashes apart and we would be placing them on. And I was like, gosh, if I'm doing this then other people might want the same thing. Maybe they want to be able to have eyelashes. They don't want to sit in a salon. They don't want to pay $200 it's a lot, it takes a long time. It takes, t- it's not cheap. And you really have to um, really, it, they pull your eyelashes out after a while. So it's not, it's not great. Um, and so as a cut, if there's other, if I want this, maybe someone else does. And then how do I show that to the world in a different perspective? How do I show people, oh, you can wear strip eyelashes, but you don't have to look like a newscaster or a drag queen or have a full bead of makeup. You can actually look like me or like you and just want like pump, but not like,
0: Lot of them. You've what you're doing is exactly what I want from Lashes. So we're in the same boat there. So 18 months, what exactly took place over that time? It's one thing to have this idea, but then to physically launch a brand is another thing entirely. So how did you find a manufacturer? How did you settle on the packaging? How did you fund the brand? There are so many moving parts.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, COVID added to that timeline quite a bit it would not have been 18 months had had the massive pandemic not happened but I know a lot about this oh yeah that little Mm. thing um you know I think so you know first of all we had to put a business plan together and then um I met some partners who are to this day my partners and are wonderful partners um this um guys from Magnet and uh we had a our first meeting was supposed to be 45 minutes and two and a half hours later we were still yammering on I was like I had like a sort of um love for them in the very first time we met. And um, they had access to some cash. I needed the cash. We, they were interested in the idea. They started talking about to people. We st- I started talking about it. We started per- percolating and putting a business plan together. Um, and then, you know, the first thing was really to find a manufacturer. Luckily, because I had worked in the beauty industry and in, in sense of working in fashion, it's very connected, working with makeup artists, working with, you know, we'd sold other products along the way. I'd done things with partners with other brands, I started just asking around and asking people who made the best eyelashes. And ironically, a lot of the makeup brands knew, but they didn't make them themselves. It's honestly, it's, it sort of was relegated to the, you know, the Ardell's and the Kiss and the, there's these other brands that were doing it and not the makeup brands. They were like, oh, we don't make lashes. And I was like, that's interesting. And so I just, you know, cold called and said, okay, wanna we want to go. We flew to Indonesia to meet with the factory and see how the lashes were made. Cause knowing how clothing is made, it's so important to know who's making your product, how it gets made what you know, who's like, and not just who's making it, meaning the people at the higher arts, but who are the people who are making it? Are they, what does it feel like there, you know, making sure that they're treated well, that it felt safe and, you know, all of those things. And also just like what the process is like, I didn't know anything about making lashes, which was really illuminating. Thank God. (laughs) And, um, and then we just started, we had a fitting, basically we hired 21 different men and women ages 17 to 72. And we just started building lashes on them, like pulling apart the lashes that the factory had given us to work with. It was just like samples. And then we just added one here, added one here, added one here. And then we carefully took them off. We took pictures and carefully took them off. And then we had a a retouch or like sort of re, you know, construct them based on, on an image and I, some of them were total shit. I mean, it was a total shit show. Some of them, and um, and then we just started doing fittings. We sent them off. They made samples. We put them on people again. We edited. These are too similar. This one doesn't work. Oh, that one's ugly. What the hell were we thinking? This one's amazing. And and then you know we whittled down and and we got our lashes. And the packaging was really um, a labor of love with a dear friend Joe, who I had worked with at um, J Crew Pryor, and uh, you know she was uh, instrumental in working on the packaging and the the website. Um, and I don't know it just was like it was very similar to doing what I did to take crew thank god but we had you know a very sort of um thoughtful process around it one of the things that had happened upon visiting the factory was um I walked into this sort of football field size room full of plastic trays and every other brand that this factory was working for was making trays for these lashes and they were all plastic and I was like god I don't know if I can do that. Like it just didn't feel right. Um, I, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, with the whole recycling thing. I obviously I care very much about what's happening to our planet, but I also have a child who's make me, makes me hyper aware because he's just he's grown up with it, and it's just I don't know. It just felt bad, and so we really set out to make packaging that was completely sustainable, particularly because this type of product is made to be worn for a few times or you know up to 10 and then thrown away and so and naturally the packaging is going to go in the trash it's not the kind of packaging that you're going to hold on to for years and so that became really um, a point of process thoughtfulness and pride and we, we made a, a bagasse tray which is basically sugarcane pulp uh, and we also have the, the outside of the cardboard is all recyclable and that was really important to us and I think you know obviously Australia as a country that is well aware of the impact of greenhouse gases and, and what we do to this country and the world. And so um, that was a big, that was a really big um, push for us in terms of really making made it made them a little bit more expensive, but we felt like it was probably one of the most important things we could do.
0: You've given me a good segue there. Cause I did want to talk more about the packaging. It, yours is 98% plastic free on the website. It says that the brand is not perfect, but a lot less plastic. Now, when I read that, it, that's just so refreshing because I've i I'm so used to seeing brands hitting, say, ninety something percent plastic free, but then celebrating. So the fact that you're acknowledging that you are going to keep going, that's rare from a beauty brand. So a broad question, but why is that level of transparency so important to you? I
1: don't I think I don't know. I think I've just always been annoyed when like people don't aren't honest with me. And I always respect someone when they actually give me the like tell the truth. And I think also we've seen a lot of transformation in the industry at large, in terms of the way that people market and like radical transparency, which I appreciate so much. I think Everlane was one of, you know, one of the, the pioneers in doing that and really talking to the customer about what are you getting and how are you getting it? And how do we feel about what we're doing? And, you know, and we wanted to have a plastic free packaging and we tried and it was just not possible. It was not available. The plastic that, you know, in order to have a window, that you could see the product there was just no, there was no other option we could not find anything that that wasn't you know plastic we looked at other things but they were they were cloudy and you could you couldn't see through them well enough and that was frustrating so you know we wanted to acknowledge that we tried we wanted to acknowledge that we're like not done and we would love to do more and on top of that we're also making a product that is new so you know we are not perfect we are making something new in this world so we're contributing. I think good, good news. It's tiny, and it does over time like completely go back in dear. Thank God, um, you know. But you know that was you know I came from a world where we're making clothes. Like talk about, you know. <laughs> there's a lot of process of making things. So yeah, I'm. I'm. I think it's important to me. I also think customers are smart. Like they see it mm. and they get it. And I think, you know, people appreciate when you're honest with them.
0: Love saying has. Seen you move from a major company to what is essentially a startup. I understand that there must come, you know, a physical change in the way that you're working and that you have to be <laughs> scrappy, you kind of have to do everything yourself. But what about the mental shift? How did you personally find that shift in mentality from big company to startup? And then, of course, in a pandemic, no less.
1: I mean, every like, like, I don't know crazy face emoji possible i you know it was so hard and it still is hard every day i'm like have to recalibrate my thinking about you know i think the biggest challenge is you know i spent years trying to give people autonomy i spent years trying to you know pull back and say okay i'm gonna let these people do this and and to delegate and to empower and then all of a sudden you're in this tiny little company and you want to still do that but then you don't want to be not involved, but then do, it's, it's literally like a daily game of like emotional and, and mental twister where I'm like, am I doing the right thing? Am I too involved? Am I making people feel micromanaged? Am I doing enough? Am I supportive enough? Am, it's, it's a constant, constant battle and I'll never get it right. I think, um, you know, for every moment I feel like I'm doing a good job. There's a moment where I'm like, Oh, I screwed that up. So, you know, it's hard. It's really hard. I am, I am literally going back to school
0: love scenes ethos comes down to the amplification of beauty rather than the manipulation of beauty I'd love to spend a bit of time on this what does the amplification of beauty mean to you
1: you know I think it, it came out of um you know working with troy for so long i remember a very uh, first time he i was on set with him and this model who she was beautiful but you know she I think I would have passed her on the street you know, she was beautiful features but like there are people where the camera decides them. she she sat in his chair and she came out onto set and I was like oh my god he he just took everything about her and turned it up he didn't change her he didn't layer on a lot of makeup he just he literally you know and this was before highlighter anybody anybody knew what highlighter was but he knew you know he put a little bit of gloss on the top of her cheek and the, and you know the, 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 the very sort of gentle kind of touch of gloss on all the places that are truly highlighting and he had just done the sort of most natural thing with her hair and made it a tiny bit messed up and a kiss of a blush and it, it, everything was just making her look more beautiful but never but it was exactly her and I was inspired by that I I didn't ever think of makeup as anything other than like making you up and and transforming you completely I'd grown up you know in a world where that was just not makeup was was you did the full thing. You put foundation, concealer, blush, lipstick, lip liner, you know, three different eyeshadows, an eyeliner, a mascara, a brow and all that stuff. And that was just the way it was, you know, and I didn't know anything else. And to see him really transform these girls, I just over and over again, time and time again, with just really subtle shifts. And, and they, you know, I think they felt beautiful. That was what I was really drawn to. And so, um, you know, that was really what we focused on was really not trying to change the way that you look and make you look like a different person, but like, just make you a little brighter, like basically give you a tiny bit of filter.
0: Love it. You have been a part of the fashion industry since 1990, which is of course inextricably linked to beauty. Over, <laughs> <and law. laughs> over the last few years, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry?
1: I mean, I think the thing that gets me the most excited is, you know, I, Grew up in fashion. I grew up in a world that was, you know, I, Paris is Burning is one of the first films I saw when I came to New York and I used to go to, you know, the drag shows and, you know, I was exposed to all of that and I I loved that world and I was fascinated by it and men wearing makeup and drag kings putting on tons of makeup and, and, but they weren't accepted by, you know, the actual norm, you know, the world. And I think, you know, to see, you know, even RuPaul's drag race being a, a, you know, a well posed, you know, that's, it's pretty incredible. I think to see, you know, the top five beauty bloggers or, you know, they are, you know, five out of the top five and the YouTube beauty awards, three of them were men and the winner was a man. And I just think like between that and seeing, you know, all of these brands like Woma and Fenty, like really focusing on Amicole, like focusing on darker skin and, you know, that feels like inclusive because the world doesn't look like me. The world looks like a lot of different things. And I think really seeing everyone having their reflection and shown back at them and, you know, feeling welcomed into the beauty industry, I think is incredible and overdue, but incredible.
0: And what changes do you think we can expect to see from the industry over the coming few years?
1: I mean, I really hope that with the, with this new sort of younger class of people, these younger sort of, you know, there's a lot of startup brands now between, you know, Cosas and, um, and uh, I'm just kind of, there's so many of them, Amikole, which is another one and Merit. And there's all these start brands are sort of coming to the table. I really do hope that some of the, you know, the big industries, you know, the the, the bigger brands really do help bring that more to light because I think they have real power. They have power to really, you know, support change and, and acceptance. And I think we all have a responsibility to do that. So I really hope that over, you know, the next couple of years that it's like par for the course that like a man would be in in a shoot or an older woman or a very, very dark skinned black. Like, it's not even a question. It's more a question of like, okay, what now can we do? What, you know, how much farther can we keep going? And I think that that would make me feel better.
0: My final question. What is next for love scene?
1: Good question. I mean, I think right now we are, you know, super excited to be expanding outside of the United States. So, um, you know, being able to work with Mecca has been so exciting. I've known Joe for a long time. So, having the opportunity to, you know, touch people outside of the country is, I don't know, it's great. I think my experience at J.Crew has taught me to do something and do it really well before you start doing anything else. So, um, right now we're focusing on trying to do the best we possibly can to service our customers with the lashes and other things they might need around the lashes. So um, we're focusing there, but, you know, I hope it's a big room, a more things.
0: That was Jenna Lyons, founder of Love Scene, who you can find on Instagram at Love Scene and at Jenna Lyons NYC. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.